Hi, this is Candice, and you're listening to Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. Hi, folks, and welcome once again. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. I'm excited to be with you today. Thanks for taking time to join me. And if this is your first time joining us today, welcome. We are so glad you're with us. Today is Sunday, February 27th. I am so excited to dive into this message right now. I cannot wait to go. But as always, we start with a word of prayer. So join me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your amazing grace, for your incredible love. Thank you for being our Father. Lord, I just thank you for the gift of your Son and the Spirit. And I pray that we will study and become good students of your word. Teach us today in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. I heard a story about a man who went to heaven. Of course, St. Peter met him at the pearly gates. And St. Peter said, here's how it works. You need 100 points to make it into heaven. You tell me all the good things you've done, and I'll give you a certain number of points for each item, depending on how good it was. When you reach 100 points, you get in. The man says, okay. I was married to the same woman for 50 years and never cheated on her, even in my heart. That's wonderful, says St. Peter. That's worth three points. Three points, he says. Well, I attended church all my life and supported its ministry with my tithe and service. Terrific, says St. Peter. That's certainly worth a point. One point? Golly. Well, how about this? I started a soup kitchen in my city and worked in a shelter for homeless veterans. Fantastic. That's two more points, St. Peter says. Two points, the man cries. At this point, the only way I'll get into heaven is by the grace of God. And St. Peter said, come on in. Today, we continue in our series, What We Believe. So far in this journey, we've talked about our first four core values at Word of Hope, the Bible, God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Today is core value number five, salvation. And this is how it reads. Salvation is a free gift of God. The death of Christ on the cross is the only sufficient payment for our sins. All have sinned, but all can be saved. This salvation is available for any who put their trust in Christ as Savior, Romans 3.23, 6.23, and John 3.16. Those trusting Christ should repent of sin, confess their faith, and be baptized, Romans 10.9, Acts 2.38. You know, one objection I hear concerning salvation is that it seems too good to be true. You know, the old saying, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. I'm sure you've heard that before. Here's the situation. If you're going to give your life over to God to follow his son, Jesus, and trust that he can save you, then you want to be sure that the salvation that the Bible speaks of is for real, and it's the truth. You want to make sure it's not too good to be true. I remember the first time years ago when I thought about the idea of cloning. Yeah, I know it's kind of a strange thought, but many years ago, there was a movie made in the mid-90s about it. The movie was called Multiplicity. Michael Keaton played the main character in the movie. Now, I can't remember all the circumstances right now, but he's able to be cloned. He thinks that this is going to be a great idea. He never has enough time to get everything done that he needs to get done, and he wishes that there was more of him to go around. So through the miracle of cloning, there is. This is too good to be true. It's unbelievable. He's going to be able to accomplish twice the work he's doing now without any extra effort. But things turn badly because although his clones look exactly like him physically, none of their personalities match his, and this causes big problems. He ends up spending the majority of his time 
trying to make sure that his clones don't destroy his life. Turns out, cloning was too good to be true. But his salvation, and his salvation for real? The truth is that every single person on this earth needs salvation. Whether they recognize it or not, the greatest need of mankind is the salvation of our souls. So that's the title of the sermon today, Is Salvation for Real? And we're going to answer that question and more. But in order to answer that question, we've got to answer a few other questions. And the first question is, what is salvation? The dictionary defines salvation as deliverance from danger or suffering. To save is to deliver or protect. The word carries the idea of victory, health, or preservation. Sometimes we get a little confused about salvation. We hear about it in many different terms, such as being saved, being born again, becoming a new creation, having a relationship with God, etc. If our greatest need is salvation, then we need to know exactly what salvation is all about. In studying the word salvation in the New Testament, we find that salvation involves five specific things. The first is deliverance from impending death. It's as if we've been stricken with an incurable disease and our death is imminent. And we have no hope of beating that disease. There's nothing we can do to stop it. We're helpless. Salvation is our cure, beating that incurable disease and delivering us from the impending death that was looming over us. Next, salvation involves the saving of the whole person. Sometimes the Bible uses the words saved or salvation to refer to temporal or physical deliverance, like Paul's deliverance from prison in Philippians 1.19. But more often, the word salvation refers to an eternal and spiritual deliverance. In other words, our very souls are saved and our whole being is saved by God. Next, salvation involves the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness literally means to be freed or released. We are freed from the debt and consequences of our sin. Salvation also involves deliverance from the hands of our enemy. Outside of Christ, we are easily manipulated and controlled by our enemy, Satan. God's salvation frees us from the hands of Satan. He no longer has reign over us. We have the power to resist and defeat him because Jesus has already defeated him by conquering death and being raised from the dead after three days in the tomb. And lastly, salvation involves the sparing of the coming judgment and wrath of God. The Bible tells us that we all have to face the final judgment of God, Romans 14, 10. But God's salvation gives us freedom from worry about that day. We'll be found not guilty of our sins in the eyes of God, and thus will not have to face the wrath of God that will be poured out on the wicked and unrighteous. Two verses in particular really stick out as a vivid description of salvation. Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14. They read, for he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Salvation is about God rescuing us and bringing us out of the hands of our enemy in the dominion of darkness and giving us citizenship in the kingdom of his son, redeeming us or releasing us from our sin by forgiving our sins. Now that we've answered that first question of what salvation is, the second question we need to address is, why is salvation needed? Why do we need this? In a nutshell, salvation is needed because we've got a sin problem. Don't think so? Romans 3.23 says, For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Our nature is one that is rebellious, folks. 
We tend to love the rebel. The rebel is dangerous and cool and does things his or her own way. Our sin is open rebellion against God. We're doing the opposite of what he wants us to do. But there are consequences to our sins. And let's talk more about that. The first consequence is we're imprisoned by our sin. Galatians 3.22 says, But the scriptures declare that we are all prisoners of sin. We're held captive by our sin. We are held in bondage. We've been captured and our sin forms a prison cell around us, holding us hostage, separating us from God. The second consequence is we're under a curse. Galatians 3.10 says, But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scripture says, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. The American Heritage Dictionary defines a curse as something that brings or causes evil. Our sin puts us under a curse in which we continually have evil in our hearts and do evil things. Probably one of the most famous curses in modern history revolves around baseball great Babe Ruth. Before he was a New York Yankee, Babe Ruth was a member of the Boston Red Sox. He was their best player. Not only was he their best hitter, he was also their best pitcher. And he led the Red Sox to multiple world championships. After the 1919 season, the owner of the Red Sox, Harry Frazee, traded Babe Ruth to the Yankees to help finance a Broadway musical he was involved in. It would be 86 years before the Red Sox would win another World Series. It was said that during that time, they were under the, quote, curse of the Bambino, end quote, the curse of Babe Ruth. We too are under a curse due to our sin. We will never win. We will never be right with God as long as we are under our sin. The third consequence of sin is we're slaves to it. Romans 6.16 says, don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. Sin has become our master, and we have become its slave. We are under sin's control. It owns us. And the last consequence is we're sentenced to death by our sin. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Our sin ultimately leads us to death, physical and spiritual. Death was non-existent before sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden. With sin came death, first physically for our bodies and then spiritually for our souls. We're destined to face a second death, which the Bible refers to as hell. So we've defined salvation and shown why it's needed, and we've talked about the consequences of sin. Next, let's talk about who provides salvation? The Bible tells us that our salvation comes from one source, and that source is Jesus. Hebrews 5 verses 8 and 9 say, Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. Jesus is the source of our salvation, but how did he do it? He did it by becoming a man, living a sinless life, dying on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, and rising from the dead three days later, conquering the grave. More than that, Jesus is the sole provider and sole source of salvation. You hear a lot of commercials claiming that so-and-so is the source for your home and garden needs, and so-and-so is the source for your medical needs, etc. Jesus is the source of your salvation. Acts 4.12 says, 
There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Salvation is not found in another religion. It's not found in some wise teacher. It's not found in a great charismatic political leader. It's not found in any act or ritual. It is not found in a book. It's not found within yourself. Salvation is found in one place and one place alone, and that is in the person of Jesus Christ. Why did Jesus provide our salvation? He loves us. That's the whole message of the Bible. God loves you. Even before that first sin was committed in the Garden of Eden, God had a plan to bring you back to him. All of history led up to the coming of Christ so that his work could be completed and our sins could be forgiven. The rest of history is now leading up to when Jesus will come again and take his people to live with him in heaven. Why? Because God loves you. Next, let's answer this question. Why does salvation appear too good to be true? Looking at everything we've talked about today, it would be easy to conclude that salvation is too good to be true, that it can't be real, but it is. I want to address a few arguments that people have concerning the validity of salvation. Salvation appears too good to be true because it's a free gift. Ephesians 2.8 says God saved you by his grace when you believed. It is a gift from God. Salvation is a gift. There are no strings attached. You don't have to meet certain standards to qualify for it. God is offering it to you. It's your responsibility to either accept the gift or reject it. I love giving gifts. My problem is that I can't wait for them to be opened. When I go and buy a gift, I have to give it as soon as I have the chance. I end up doing most of my birthday and Christmas shopping at the last minute because I don't have to wait that long to give the gift. God is one that enjoys giving gifts. His greatest gift is that of salvation. Next, salvation is too good to be true because it cannot be earned on our part. Ephesians 2.9 says salvation is not a reward for the good things you've done, so none of us can boast about it. We like to earn our keep, don't we? We want to pull our weight. We don't like to have anything handed to us because we think we owe something then. Salvation is one area where we can't do it ourselves. It simply cannot be earned. In his book, The Grip of Grace, Max Licato gives a great illustration of this. He compares trying to earn our salvation to stacking rocks to build a path upstream against a river. It's impossible, and all it does is serve to frustrate and exhaust. Salvation is God's to give, not ours to earn. And lastly, salvation is too good to be true because it's based on grace. Well, Ephesians 2, 5, and 8 say this, Verse 5, it's only by God's grace that you've been saved. And then verse 8, God saved you by his grace when you believed. So salvation is given to us on the basis of grace. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. In other words, we can't earn it and certainly don't deserve it. In fact, instead of getting what we really deserve for our sins, which is death, God has taken our punishment for us and given us the exact opposite of what we deserve, life. Now that's grace. So back to the original question, what we started with in the very beginning of this message. Is salvation for real? Yes. Yes, indeed, salvation is for real. It's from God, and it's definitely needed, and it delivers us from our biggest problem, which is sin. Have you ever been to a Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum? They have one in San Antonio, not far from where I am, as well as different locations across the United States and Canada. Now, I've never been inside one of their museums, 
but I know there are all sorts of weird, exotic, unbelievable, but totally true exhibits there. And people clearly have done incredible feats and such that are featured. Salvation comes across many times as something out of Ripley's Believe It or Not. We can't believe what our eyes and ears are telling us. It seems impossible, too good to be true. But it is real. Salvation is for real, folks. God loves you, and he wants to rescue you. So how do you get there from here? Realize your need. Accept the truth that you cannot save yourself. That's the all-important first step into a right relationship with God. This is the identifying mark of a Christ follower. It's also that which distinguishes Christianity from other major world religions. Those religions are not grace-based. They are works-based. They include elements of measuring up, earning merit, and doing things. So while false religious systems emphasize the quote-unquote do, Jesus emphatically proclaims done. Everything that needed to be accomplished in order to make it possible for people to be right with God has already been done 2,000 years ago on the cross of Jesus Christ. Only God can save us. Our sin separates us from the Creator, and no amount of moral effort will repair the damage and place us in a right relationship with God. This is precisely why Paul adores the gospel and is no way ashamed of it. He said in Romans 1.16, The gospel is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes. Next, say you're sorry and mean it. Another word for that is repent. Part of repentance includes the realization that you've been going in the wrong direction. When Jesus opens your eyes to who you really are, a genuine sadness penetrates the soul. You begin to realize that your sins have wounded not only those around you, but also the heart of God. A person who has encountered Jesus does an about-face and decides that he or she will live a new life. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Those who weep over their sins will indeed be comforted by his forgiveness. A passionate pursuit of godliness is the natural result of true conversion. In Acts 19, verses 18 and 19, for example, the people who decided to follow Jesus were moved to confess their sorcery and destroy all their occult objects. You can also check out Galatians 2.20, Acts 2.38, Acts 17, verses 30 through 31, and Luke 24, verse 47. Next, verbalize your commitment. Another word for that is confess. Jesus was clear that if we confess his name before others, he will confess our names before the Father, Matthew 10.32. A commitment to Christ means exactly that, commitment. When we truly believe that without Jesus we're lost and resigned to an eternity without God, our appreciation for his work on the cross dramatically expresses itself in the way we live. We're in no way ashamed of Jesus. We proclaim his name at home, at school, at work, on the soccer field, in the bowling alley, and in the marketplace. Our friends don't have to guess why we live the way we do. If they have spent any amount of time with us, they know whom we believe in, and they see our shamelessness concerning the name of Jesus. And lastly, plunge your past. In other words, be baptized. God wants to enter into a new covenant with you and me. First, he requires the circumcision of the heart. Second, he requires the sacrifice of his one and only son. But notice that in both cases, what God requires, he provides. 
Finally, he requires baptism. When we step into the waters of baptism, we're making preparation for God's spirit to come live in us. Is that exciting or what? Paul said in Romans 6, verses 3 through 4, Or have you forgotten that when we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. So, beloved, here's the question for you. Will you decide now to follow Jesus? Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.